Hi, everyone. I'm Mike Novogratz, and this is Next with Nova. Hi, everybody. This is Mike Novogratz, Next with Novo. I'm here with Derek Morgan, famed Tennessee Titan, impact investor, good guy all around, uh, born and raised in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Yeah, born in Lancaster, grew up in Coatesville, and uh, been in the South since for about the last 15 years, man. So, so tell, talk about growing up in Lancaster a little bit. Definitely um, not your average upbringing. Um, I was raised by my grandparents for the first couple of years of my life with my mom, and they lived in Amish country. You know, you got horse and buggies, and you know, one of my first babysitters was a uh, Amish family. And so I was going to and from in a uh, horse and buggy, you know, <laughs> uh, very unique. Um, not a lot of people that look like me out there. I'll tell you that. But um, <laughs> it was, um, you know, a, a good experience and you know, I had a really good foundation with my um, family. Um, moved to uh, Coatesville, you know, probably around my middle, middle school years. That's when I really started getting into, um, into sports, uh, particularly football. And uh, one of my coaches told me I had a, had a chance to get a scholarship um, and get my education paid for. And at that moment, I quit everything else. I quit basketball, baseball, track, and I was just dialed in on, you know, getting to uh, a scholarship for football. And so ended up getting a, a full ride to Georgia Tech. And um, yeah, the, the rest is history. You go to Georgia Tech, you're a 17 or 18 year old kid from Pennsylvania. Uh, big time football. How was that? Was it your four best years of your life or just like, God, it's just like being in the pros? Uh, Georgia Tech was a unique experience. Uh, it, it is more of an academic school. Um, so, you know, your, your classmates didn't really care if you played football. Your teachers didn't really care if you played football. You had to show up. You had to apply yourself. Uh, at the time, I hated it. I was, I was so ready to go to the league. I was just like, you know, stay eligible do what I got to do in the field, get to the league. But looking back in hindsight, it actually helped me out and, and it actually prepared me for my next step because, you know, I had several jobs when I was in college, like getting pampered. We were like, you know, full on student athletes. And so um, it, it actually helped shape me for the next phase. And so um, tech was, it was, a, it was, a, I met some of my best friends when I was there um, living in Atlanta for a couple of years and, being able to like be a part of a special journey on that team. And so uh, I, I definitely cherish those those years and um, feel, felt like they adequately prepared me for my next chapter, you know, which was the NFL. And one team the whole time in the NFL? Yeah, one, one team, uh, five head coaches. So, wow. you know, it's kind of like a, <laughs> you know, it's pros and cons, you know, obviously staying in one uh, location, one one team the whole duration of your career is great um i was able to you know get married have two children so i, I had consistency um but the the turmoil and the turnover internally was a challenge you know i got my position changed several times you know uh, uh this coach will come in with his culture that coach will come in with his you know ideology so you're constantly adjusting you're constantly trying to prove yourself to the new guard Cause I knew, I knew exactly, you know, I didn't know exactly what I wanted to do, but I knew that this was, this career was going to come to an end one day. And that was quite honestly, 
from an injury I, I um, sustained my rookie year. I ended up tearing my ACL and um, really had to sit down for a year and reflect on like my interest outside of football. Uh, I was so hyper-focused on getting to the NFL that I didn't have a lot of interest outside of the game. And so from that moment, uh, I would say that was an inception point for me um, that really woke me up and like was like, hey, like if you can't play this this sport, like what you gonna do? And who are you? And so, um, you know, I'll, I'm thankful for that. At the time it was, it was miserable, but I'm thankful that I had to go through that. And let me ask you a question. So I had one friend, uh, he was a wrestler, played nine years in the NFL, two years of you know, all pro lineman. And I remember coming out and I was trying to help him with his economics. And I was shocked at how, and he wasn't wildly profligate, but he just hadn't saved that much money. You know, you get paid, you pay the tax, you pay your agent, you take care of your family, you pay your friends. And, you know, there's not a big pile left. Uh, you seem to, to take a different tact. How did you approach the finances of the NFL? And how'd you save so much money? I'm, I'm a very uh, frugal person, but um, let's see. I lost money because I was very passive um, when I first got to the, to the league. I wasn't hands-on with my money. And I was basically letting people who I didn't necessarily know, you know or, or trust deal with my money and, and have me invested in things that I wasn't really aware of. I'm 21, 22 years old. I'm focused on ball, you know, and I wasn't hands on on my finances. So after I got that call from my advisor one day that, you know, I wasn't getting that money back, that was like another wake up call to say, whoa, like that. OK, they, these guys don't know everything. They're they're making mistakes and I'm not going to leave, you know, my financial health and, and future in the hands of people that I don't really know or trust. And so I started like taking a hands-on approach to my finances. And when I first started out, I was, I was very prideful because I didn't necessarily know all the terms of like, this is your IRR, this is your yield, or this is your, you know, et cetera. And I was, I would kind of like just shake my head and say, yep, okay. And I would agree, but I had so much questions, but I didn't want to look uh, unsophisticated or I didn't want to, you know, come off as the dumb jock. And so I just would sit back. And then, you know, when that moment came, when I got that call, I was like, enough. Like, I don't care if I look stupid. I don't care if I'm asking dumb questions. I'd rather look dumb now than act smart and then look dumb later. And so, you know, that that was for me like a, a big turning point of like involvement, hands on learning, asking questions and swallowing my pride um, so that I could educate myself. It, it really set my foundation of like, Okay, once your personal finances are in order, this is going to allow you to uh, branch off and and do things that are maybe outside of the traditional stocks and bonds. Like, what are some alternative investment you know strategies? What about real estate? What about venture, private equity? You know, um, crypto. Like all these different things. Since your since my foundation was was secure at this point, I was able to start learning about these different um, strategies and started investing my money into these things that, you know, are, are going to make more than, you know, muni bonds. And so it, it, it was more of like come in, uh, education, preservation, and then starting to grow and starting to scale your wealth. And so now I saw you were in medical cannabis uh, and you were pretty outspoken about it. Where does that come from? I had this, um, you know, 
this epiphany really of not even an epiphany. It was more of a, a shock and another wake up call. Uh, I don't know if you remember, but around 2014, there were a lot of um, narrative, like a lot of stories around guys that were committing suicide, right? And like there was this whole thing of like, you know, once somebody will retire, they would go into to this depressive state, and it would be a downward cycle. Um, and then they started talking about things like CTE that like 90 to 95% of like former NFL players who were examined had this disease. And I'm over here sitting like, I'm 25, 26 years old at the time. And I'm like, like that could be me. Like that, I could be junior Seau. Like he played 20 years. He's a hall of famer. He's won Super Bowls. What else could, you know, what else is there? Yeah. But this guy was, was tormented internally and took his life. And so that was like, whoa, like okay, I got, I have two kids now. Like, how can I be there for my kids in full capacity beyond the game? And I started just researching like, okay, like what are alternatives? I'm not popping perks and, and taking, you know, uh, you know, prescription drugs. I'm not, I'm not doing that. They'll give them to you. Like, they'll, they'll, they used to walk around the planes on the way home from games and they'll pop, you know, they'll give them to you readily available. And so that wasn't a solution. I came across uh, Eugene Monroe um, he was playing with the Baltimore Ravens at the time and he was advocating for medical cannabis. And I was like, I mean, you know, I'm not against cannabis in any way. Um, but we're, we're getting drug tested and all these things like, but let me look into it. So when I started to do my research, it started to open up a whole world of possibilities of preventative and proactive treatment for traumatic brain injury. Um, the, there's actually a, a patent with the U.S. Health Department um, that has uh, cannabidiol CBD as a um, patented neuroprotectant. And you know, when you're going out and you're banging heads, you need something to protect your your neuro <laughs> and your brain. For me, I was like, okay, let me look into this a little bit more. I started looking at like research, uh, clinical studies out of Israel, and um, just a lot of potential. Uh, around this drug, started looking at how it was affecting children with epilepsy and like talk to parents who were giving this to their children for um, cognitive issues. And I'm like, look, man, like at the end of the day, this is something that could really help me, but it can also help a lot of my peers. And we're not talking about this. And so um, I, I decided to to take the leap and say, look, I want to be able to advocate about this. I want to tell my teammates. I want to tell everybody I know about this because there's not a lot of downside, but I just thought it had so much potential as a, as a treatment, especially for like traumatic brain injuries and, and cognitive issues. And so I'm still an advocate for it, but um, I'm definitely a big believer in it. You know, where did that come from internally? Like, where's that switch come from? That, how am I gonna think about my community? Well, you know, initially my, my focus was very, you know, internal and, and, and me, me, me. Um, 22 through 23, 24, I was very um, me focused. Um, but I started to kind of wake up to the fact that A, I wasn't going to play this game forever. And B, was I using my platform to its fullest functionality and leveraging it um, for, for those who necessarily didn't have a voice? You know, I would go back to my hometown from time to time over the years and we would do things in the community you know, giving away toys, backpack, drive, like all the, the charitable stuff that you do as a professional athlete, you know, you get the photo op, you know, you sign the autograph, you know, you go back to your reality, they go back to theirs. 
and then nothing really changes. And so that essentially is the, the blueprint and the playbook that athletes get when they get to the professional level. You know, it's like you get your agent, you get your financial advisor, you start a foundation, you do some photo op and, you know, nothing really changes. So for me, when you start, when the, when the social injustice conversation started to, be, to become more mainstream, you know, back around when Trayvon Martin was murdered and like, you know, those, those instances were happening more and more on camera, um, it started to kind of like do something to me internally to say like, like this is, these are the, these communities look a lot like the community that I come from. Um, but like, we're not doing anything to really shift the systemic issues and the systemic reasons why these communities are in the, in the place they are. And so I started to really like question, like, was I doing enough? And the answer was no. Um, I started really looking at things like the private prison industry. Uh, I watched a documentary called the 13th and it was like talking about how you could unknowingly be invested in to private prisons and like core civic and geo group. And like, these were on the stock, these things were on the, on the stock exchange. Yeah. And I'm like, Ooh, I'm, I'm in some ETFs and I'm in some stocks. I might, I might, am I in these funds? Cause they don't align with my capital. Thank God I wasn't. But that for me was a moment of like, Ooh, okay. I got to wake up again and I got to, I got to get back in the driver's seat. And so what I started to do was educate myself on impact investing, picked up a lot of books, reached out to some, some, some people who were like in that space. And I started to educate myself. Um, I reallocated most of my capital to um, things that align with my values. So started investing in affordable housing, uh, things like uh, investing in minority entrepreneurs and um, companies like Bitwise, they do technology training um, for underserved uh, populations. So things like that were tangible and they moved the needle. And so when I would go to these neighborhoods, I, like the conversation would change around, oh yeah, you're gonna get to the NFL. But it was like, no, like what's your backup plan? You know, cause chances are none of y'all are getting to the NFL. That's just the reality. So what are you gonna, what's, your, what's gonna be your backup plan? And like, for me, it was like, okay, they may have a, a goal or a dream, but do they have the resources? Did, are the economics there in that community? Is the access to capital there? And a lot of the times the answer is no. And so, you know, I started to take an intentional approach individually to try to you know, change some of those things. That's awesome. That's awesome. Listen, I, I start with this simple, just fact-based, uh, harsh fact that we have 13% African-Americans in America and they roughly own 2% of the wealth. Uh, and until that gap starts closing, we're going to have a broken America. And right now, the first derivative is negative. I, it's getting worse, not better. And so we've got to at least stop it. And it's got to start getting better. And it really won't feel like we're changing until the second derivative is positive, until it starts getting better at an accelerating rate. And so I constantly think about how do we you know, structurally, both on local, local community-based level and at a more macro level, start changing that, right? And that's where it's, I mean, you're working on the front lines of it. Uh, it's, it's an unbelievably challenging, because uh, the scale is so big, right? That, that gap is about $11 trillion, uh, trillion, <laughs> it's a lot of dollars. Uh, but again, it doesn't have to be closed. It's just, it just has to start closing. 
And I think if people could understand that, it doesn't feel as daunting. Because when you say it's 11 trillion, you just feel like I will never get that done. But it's amazing when you, when you get a positive second derivative, when it's growing at a quicker rate, everyone feels better because you feel better when you're expanding, not when you're contracting. And so um, it's interesting. I res- you know, a lot of what you're doing is just kind of resonated. I've been spending a lot of time in uh, criminal justice reform. And the more time I spend listening, the more I just get pissed off and like, oh, uh, we got to change that system. Uh, so you, you end up with an opportunity zone fund. Talk a little bit about that. Yeah, uh, that was my I mean, that was my stance on it when I first you know heard about them. Um, the, the reason why I'm like we initially launched with a intent focus on OZs where uh, my hometown was de- the whole city was designated an opportunity zone. And it's the poorest county, a poorest city in the richest county of the, in the state of Pennsylvania. And so you have all these resources in a mile or two in either direction, um, but they don't trickle into the city. And so obviously you have to incentivize that, right? You have to incentivize the capital to come into these, you know, underserved, under you know, overlooked areas. And so the uh, the notion was let's use this opportunity zone tool as a means to get capital into a market like Coatesville that people usually don't care about. Um, so uh, initially we lost a, a blind pool, a $200 million blind pool fund. And at the time, in my mind, I'm like, yeah, like, you know, I just retired. I'm going to be a, a fund manager. You know, that's that's what I thought I wanted to do. Um, I'm six, you know, I'm like six months into this thing and we're putting together a project in my hometown. And, you know, I look up and I'm like, man, we got to get a developer. And um, one of my, my consultants was like, well, aren't you essentially the developer on this deal? And I'm like, I don't know. Am I? She's like, yeah, you're, you're bringing all these things together. You're, you're orchestrate, orchestrating everything. You're coordinating all the pieces. I'm like, oh, well, this is what I want to do. I don't want to sit behind a desk and, and manage money. I, I don't want to be a fund manager, per se. Um, I do want to you know, bring capital into this project in these areas, but I want to be on the ground. I want to leverage who I am to be a connector, to be a bridge. And so what we did, Mike, was we, we pivoted from a blind pool fund structure to just really doing project by project uh, fundraisers for specific deals. Uh, obviously, coming out as a, as a first time fund manager, you know, it's not the easiest thing to do to raise money. Not that it's impossible, but you always have that knock against you. And then let's face it, there's the narrative of, you know, af- athletes and money, right? Those two things usually don't mix. Yeah. And so we were fighting all those things and, you know, we're still fighting, but we're fighting in a different way and we think a more efficient way. And so, um, yeah, man, I, I, along the way, I met a lot of good people on my journey. My, my partner, Kendrick Whittington, he's out of Austin. Uh, we do real estate together um, in that market and several other markets. Actually do uh, disaster relief efforts through, uh, through FEMA um, in, in five states. And so we build about 100 single family homes a year. And then I also met uh, another, my, my last partner, Brendan Doherty, when he was at Forbes, um, uh, he ran a division called Forbes Impact. And so, you know, meeting, meeting him, you know, he brought a whole nother um, perspective to the table. And so the three of us launched Kingdom. And then, you know, over the last 18 months to two years, we've been really playing the role of developer. Um, we have several projects going on um, in Nashville, Atlanta and Birmingham. Uh, we, we just closed on one here in Nashville to do a uh, 50 unit affordable housing deal um, with a nonprofit. And so, 
you know, we're, we're starting off, you know, with a very humble posture to un understanding that like this, this is a long game. But it's still, it's still, it's still mission aligned with how do I make an impact in these communities? Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the underlying theme. It's just a different means of doing it. How is it, you know, we've gone through this George Floyd moment uh, last year, which really, you know, kind of galvanized the country in lots of ways. Uh, there's a New York version of how that felt. Uh, there's a Los Angeles version of how that felt, but there's a Southern version, uh, especially as a, as a, as a black American. Uh, what was it like in Nashville or in Tennessee as a black American in this, what, what was a kind of a, a really moment of reckoning with race in America? Yeah. Um, I think what it did, Mike, was it, it, there, it was, you couldn't no longer hide from it. There's a lot of people that didn't want to have these uncomfortable, tough conversations around race in America. And, you know, quite frankly, a lot of white people will point to the fact that we had a black president, um, that, you know, all, all this is behind us. Uh, that's not the case. And so I think particularly down here in Nashville and in, in Tennessee, it's like, you know, there was just a lot of ignorance really from some of my white friends that didn't quite understand the magnitude of racism and oppression that still persists persist in this country. And so um, I had a lot of, of my white friends reach out to me and say, you know, look, man, like, you know, what can I do? Like, I, I'm, I'm sorry. Like, I'm like, look, you don't got to apologize. Like, you didn't do nothing wrong, but it's more so like um, there, there, there was this, this lethargic um, apathy of like passiveness that I've picked up on since being here. I went to school in Atlanta, so coming to Nashville it was a very different, you know, environment when it came to race. You got a lot of successful black people in Atlanta. It, to Nashville, you don't really see that. You know, I go out to, I went out to a nice restaurant last night, and I was the only, you know, person that looked like me in there. And so uh, it, it was more of a, um, a passive energy that I felt when it came to race. Um, but the, what, the, what the George Floyd um, incident did was it, you could no longer hide from it, man. And so I think, you know, the, the tension down here was at an all time high. Um, and, you know, you had people out in the streets, you, you had the protests and all, all those things going on. But what I think it really did was it started to spark the conversation um, around race in, in uncomfortable situations that that needed to happen. And so I think, you know, obviously we have a long way to go. It does, you know, my thing is my whole, my whole notion was like, I hope this doesn't go away in six months because this problem isn't gonna go away in six months. And so, um, you know, I, I just wanted to be, you know, I want to see, I want to see authentic, you know, caring, like people caring about this problem in an authentic way. But um, yeah, it was tense, man. I know a lot of the owners who uh, are aligned with how you're feeling. Um, do you think they've learned? Do you think the NFL is, is on the side of change and justice? Uh, or are they still, you know, is, is it still a frustration for you? Well, I think, I think they're trying, um, they're playing catch up to some extent. Uh, in my opinion, if you have a, a league full of black people, you should have some some self-awareness and, and awareness into the issues of the people that you employ. Um, and 
you know, I, there the, a criticism could be, well, why did it take this, um, you know, for the NFL or anybody in general to, to step up and start to take pledges um, and, and take action. So, you know, that being said, uh, I, I do think that that are coming out of this are very positive. Um, there's a lot of money flowing to issues that affect, you know, social injustice. Um, you know, the Kaepernick thing definitely was a miss. Um, you know, you had people, you got people uh, <laughs> kneeling, you had people kneeling in 2020 who were uh, one of the main critis- criticizers of Cap back in 16. And so I think that it became more socially um, appropriate to be an activist or to be, um, you know, down with the cause, so to speak. So to me, it kind of comes off as phony. I'm just being honest with you. Like, you know, to, to my earlier point, like, are people going to still care about this in six months? If the mainstream media isn't talking about it, are our corporations and our, you know, Fortune 500 companies, and are, are we still going to be prioritizing this thing? Because it's not going away. Yeah. You talk about 11 trillion, that's not going away. You said it's getting worse. So, you know, I, I think people like yourself and myself, like, you know, people who are who care about these issues and are there on the ground, like, great, we benefit because there's more there's more capital flowing for these issues. Um, but I'm just I'm, I'm hopeful for a sustained effort because it's, it's a big problem. Uh, anything you want to ask me? Uh, yeah. Uh, come come join my podcast. We, we have a I'd podcast launching on uh, Clubhouse it's called Icons of Impact. Um, essentially, what it does, Mike, is it takes. Um, uh, two perspectives of an impact investment. So, you know, somebody like yourself, who's an investor, um, invest in a company, you, you're really investing in an entrepreneur. Um, so we're getting your perspective as the investor and also the flip side of the uh, story from the entrepreneur and how that investment, you know, really uh, correlated to that company's success. And so it's a 360 uh, perspective um, of telling stories about impact investments and like how those things you know, change society. So I love that. Love that. Awesome. Well, thanks a ton for your time. I really, I'm impressed as heck. I didn't realize you were only 32. Now I'm not even more impressed. Uh, and so I'm going to cheer for you from the sideline, probably cheer harder now that you're not a Tennessee Titan, uh, that you're actually just out there doing the good work. Okay. Thank you, Mike. Appreciate your time. All right. Be well. Be well.